Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I am just going to cut right to the chase. Today's show is probably going to be one of the most controversial shows I think I've ever done. And we've touched on some pretty controversial topics. You know, we've talked about wolves. We've talked about trophy hunting. We've talked about why zoos matter. And um, I think this one, this episode, though, today's show might take the cake, though, for being the most controversial. We talk today about SeaWorld. We talk about blackfish. We talk about orcas in captivity. And on the show, I have expert and author Mark Simmons. He's been working with marine mammals for over 30 years. He is the author of the book Killing Keiko, the true story of Free Willy's return to the wild. Mark was a great guest. I really enjoyed talking to Mark. I really wanted to stay away from the touchy topic of orcas in captivity. Ever since Blackfish, the 2013 documentary that CNN aired about orcas in captivity, they focused on Tilikum, the male captive orca that killed Don Brancho, a SeaWorld trainer, back in 2010. SeaWorld has been on fire since this documentary, Blackfish. And I honestly really was on the fence regarding releasing this podcast because I did not want to feed into the blackfish hype you know after last week's episode which by the way if you had not had a chance to listen to it i encourage it episode 135 with carly wadman she uh, is an animal trainer we got into blackfish we started discussing blackfish we talked you know about the documentary and SeaWorld and its orcas and i thought you know what i really should release this interview with mark simmons I really just didn't want to feel the fire. I did not. I wanted to leave SeaWorld alone. I wanted to leave Blackfish alone. I was good. But, you know, I feel like I would not be doing you justice, the listener, by keeping this interview. I just, I think there's a lot of really, really good insight. And so I'm going to release it. And this is today's show. And, you know, I, um, you know, really encourage everyone to listen to the show with an open mind. We discuss Blackfish. We discuss Tilikum, the orca that killed the trainer, Don Brancho, back in 2010 at SeaWorld. We discuss the incident. We discuss what happened in Mark's opinion. Mark, the guy we have on the show, he was one of Tilikum's you know, lead trainers. We then discuss Keiko, which is the famous free willy whale. He uh, starred in three of the um, three free willy movies. My goodness, try to say that three times. That's a lot. We discuss Keiko and we discuss what happened when animal activists basically uh, wanted to set Keiko free into the wild and how that was a complete disaster of a plan. And really, it's the premise of his book, Killing Keiko, the true story of Free Willy's Return to the Wild. So we just get into it. Now, please keep in mind, this was recorded two years ago, but all the information is still relevant. We're still having the same discussions. And I also have to say, I recorded this on Google Hangouts back in the day. This is like one of my earlier shows. And it's a little etchy with the sound, but like I said, it's not completely crisp in some areas, but I know you guys will accept it because the information here is great. There's a lot of great insight in in today's show. Okay, before we get to 
this week's podcast. As always, please make sure to like and uh, subscribe to the show. Please leave a rating and review. We are getting several more reviews and I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And, you know, in the reviews, let us know which episodes you liked. I think we had a recent review and they said that they liked the controversial topics. And I thought, okay, this is good. I mean, if, if you want this type of content, continue to let me know. Let other listeners know or potential listeners who are wanting to, you know, listen to the show to learn more about animals and, of course, uh, what it's like in the industry. Also, please make sure to follow me on my social channels at Corbin Maxi on Instagram and on YouTube. As I record this intro, TikTok is still around, although there was talk that it was going to be banned soon. So anyway, check us out. Hopefully we're not banned by the time you listen to this, but uh, you can check out stuff on TikTok as well. Okay, with that said, please, 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 please welcome to the show, Mark Simmons. Well, I'm happy to connect. I mean, you're kind of like a celebrity in, in, in the animal world and excited to connect. I'm happy Mike. Hey, Mike, a shout out from the Turtleback Zoo was able to connect us. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Mike is a, a good friend. Really like him a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you have basically been working with marine animals for over what, 28, 30 years? Uh, it's yeah, probably closer to 30 than I want it to be. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting old too, man. I'm 29. I just turned 29. Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, I mean, just take me and take the listeners from the beginning. Okay. And then, you know, for those of you listening, uh, Mark, you know, worked at SeaWorld for a many number of years. You might recognize him from the 2013 documentary Blackfish. He was um, interviewed for that. He also assisted, which I thought was so interesting, Mark, uh, you assisted with the Keiko release project, which I can't wait to talk to you about. And you also have released a book in 2014, Killing Keiko. So I'm really excited to talk to you about all these types of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, I would have never in a million years predicted the career that I've been blessed with. You know, I was raised on a horse farm in Virginia. I'd never seen a whale until I was 17 years old. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, so did you, so you worked on the horse farm. I mean, when, so you were 17 and I'm assuming you went to SeaWorld and saw these killer whales. Yeah, exactly. I did. I went with, uh, with a high school sweetheart and, uh, first time I'd ever been to central Florida and went to SeaWorld and I was just absolutely sold. And then I spent the next, uh, uh, I don't know how long next year or so of my life doing everything I could to, uh, apply for that position and sort of the rest is history. Man, I mean, but that sounds so easy. I mean, did you have to fight for the job? I mean, did you, I mean, have to get any other animal experience or did you just, just apply and as luck has it, you were able to become a trainer? Well, yes. I mean, I, I lucked out in timing. Um, they were opening the SeaWorld of San Antonio Park um, or we're soon going to open it. So they were increasing their staff exponentially to be able to open that park. And um so there were a lot of hires and I was, uh, I was blessed with a pretty athletic, um, physique and, and capability when I was younger. Uh, that's long gone, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so they really liked me for that. And, um, I was, I was put at the Wayland Dolphin stadium for just over a year. And then they moved me to Shamu for the rest of my career. They were working with the killer whales. So. 
Wow. And isn't that everyone's goal? I mean, because I remember, by the way, I remember going to SeaWorld as a kid. I believe the one in Orlando was my first one. So the same one that you went to. And I just remember being just mesmerized and thinking, oh my goodness, I, I, I would want to do this one day, you know? And uh, I grew up in Idaho. So you can imagine we're pretty far away too from <laughs> any ocean. Oh yeah. You and I, I mean, you know, I might as well have been in Idaho where I was in Virginia, nowhere near an ocean, but uh yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, you know, it's so inspiring. And the first show uh, that I saw, I saw a nighttime show with Shamu and um, I can remember it like it was yesterday. It, uh, it just lit me up. I mean, I wanted to do that. I wanted to know these animals and it wasn't about the, the show and the fanfare. None of that. I was never, never into the performance. It was about the relationship with the animals that I just found so magical. And, and then, you know, again, I'm going to say a million times here uh, talking about my career, but I, again, blessed that I got that opportunity. It was even more magical than I had ever imagined. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so did you initially want to be put in Shamu? I mean, did, did, did you basically apply for a variety of positions, whether it was in the sea lion and otter stadium or, you know, whale and dolphin, or, I mean, was Shamu, was that your goal? Well, I think a lot of trainers goal is to work with the killer whales. Um, at least back when I started and that was 87, but, um, you know, they put you wherever they put you and you don't have much choice in that. So you apply for the animal behavior department. And at that time, you could end up working with sea lions, with killer whales, with dolphins, with dogs, even oh. uh, canine uh, uh -huh. dogs and birds and a lot of different things. Uh, you could even be going out of the park and doing educational tours. So um, you just went where they put you. Okay. Okay. And so, and you enjoy, I mean, tell me about your first experience. And I remember this watching Blackfish, you were saying, I believe you were the one that said that when you got in the water with the dolphins, just how much bigger they really were. That was your first impression. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I laugh because um, I'll say, you know, I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth here because I will often tell people that back when I first started was the safest we ever were. And I say that because we were in the water all the time. For everything we just got in the water i mean why would you why would you not be in the water with these animals right if you're going to work with a whale or a dolphin you're going to be in the water if you if you don't want to be in the water then go work with goats or horses or you know <laughs> something dry but we were in the water all the time and the animals were so accustomed to it that it was nothing it meant nothing it was just hey you were hanging out but my first experience there was a guy who had six months experience and me and you got to understand, I put my wetsuit on backwards. I was so, I had no idea. I, <laughs> the zipper, I had the zipper in the front. So oh after they showed me how to put the wetsuit on right, I'm out there with a guy who had six months experience. He's scrubbing the stage. So he's not even really watching. I'm in the water with a bunch of dolphins in a big um, gilai, Pacific. And for people who don't know this, uh, those Pacific uh, bottlenose dolphins, they're big. Um, whereas an Atlantic bottlenose dolphin can be around, you know, on the high side around 900 pounds, but they're typically around 500. Um, uh, a Pacific bottlenose can, can get up to 1200 pounds. Oh my gosh. Um, and her name was Geneva and she was very mischievous and she decided to drag me around like a rag doll and then sit on me in the shallows. And, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at the guy on stage going, is this, normal am i supposed to be freaking out is this fun i don't know <laughs> oh my gosh that is just 
man, I bet like, I'm sure you like probably miss like the, the, the good old days when you were able to get that much interaction, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And when I was at Shamu, it was the same way we were in the water all the time. I mean, um, you know, it, it just, they expected it, the animals expected it. And, um, unfortunately, you know, when all the things happened, uh, after Dawn's death, um, I I've often said there things there are less safe now for obvious reasons. Those, those whales that, that I worked with in my career, they were very accustomed to us being in the water. It just, it wasn't a novel thing. It was a routine thing. In fact, you could, we rehearsed it all the time. We'd do backboarding safety drills with the whales in the pool. They just kind of look at us like, eh, okay, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but now it's all novel, you know, and you yeah. don't know how they're going to react if somebody um, were to get in or fall in. Yeah. And you specifically worked, I mean, what was your first impression when you, I mean, just your first impression when you heard about Don's death and, and she passed in 2010, correct? 2000, yeah, I believe February, 2010, I was traveling at the time and it's a small, small community um, of past, present and future, uh, you know, trainers. It's a very, very small community. So word traveled fast. I knew right away. Um, well, you know, first of all, my wife was really good friends with Dawn. I knew Dawn. I worked with Dawn for, for years, um, not always directly. Um, and Dawn was just one of those people that was just always happy, always happy and always and loved that uh, career, um, probably as much as anybody I can think of. You know, and it, it, um, it broke, broke our heart. Um, you know, definitely I, I can remember the, a lot of strong emotions there. Um, but I think none of us really expected what happened in, in the years to come after. And I, it's so crazy how you said word travels fast. And I have a friend, she is a senior aquarist at SeaWorld. And she's been there, I think, for, oh my goodness, eight years, eight, nine years. And I remember she texts me like immediately, even I think even before it broke almost. Mm -hmm. um, we're just, you know, and anyway, I just remember thinking, oh my God. Um, and so you specifically worked with Tilikum the whale, which of course is the centerpiece or the main, I don't know, character, uh, in blackfish. I mean, what was it like working with him? Uh, he was, he was a big, uh, lap dog. I mean, he was a, you know, I, and this is why it's, it's so different than what the general public has, has been exposed to because, um, Tilikum was not a sea world whale. Right. And most people don't know that you have to understand who Tilikum was. He was not a sea world whale. He was never raised learning water work with humans. He was never taught etiquette of how to interact with a human in the water. I mean, we're, we're pretty fragile to them. Even just mild play to them can really hurt us. So we have to teach them right from mm -hmm. a very early age. Um, all the sea world's whales learned that Tilikum never learned that. In fact, um, Tilikum was raised in an environment where, and I don't think the trainers meant, to do this in any malicious way, but out of their own ignorance, they used to play keep away with toys in the water. So he had this rather Jekyll and Hyde switch that when things would get in the water, he would just become really possessive of them. Mm -hmm. And on a very fundamental level, that's exactly what happened with Dawn. Um, and we all knew that that potential was there. We all knew that potential was there. Um, but as an animal, I mean, he would sit around and let you love on him for hours. He was just the most 
calm. And, you know, I heard all these reports that all this crazed animal from captivity and all the horrible things people find so easy to believe. um, Not a single one of them was true, unfortunately. And I, and I think that's an injustice to the public to, to be fed that because that's not at all what happened. Um, And I'll tell you, you know, my personal experience with blackfish, it, it also kind of frustrated me. They interviewed me for three hours. I was Tillicum's team leader. I had more experience with Tillicum. I went to uh, Vic- Victoria to prepare him for the move to Orlando. Really? And then really quick, just tell our listeners, maybe some of you have heard living underneath a rock and you haven't seen Blackfish because he was at the sea land of the Pacific in British Columbia. That's correct? right. That's okay. right. And so that, you were there. Okay, go ahead. Well, well, SeaWorld came in because a trainer was killed up there. And again, those animals, there were three killer whales in the water, in the pool at that time, Haida, uh, Nootka, and Tillicum. Uh, Tilcom definitely participated in that event, you know, that incident uh, quite quite a bit. Um, but again, the learning history was there. You know, they were sort of taught this real bad habit of playing keep away. And and you know, let's let's be perfectly clear. Clear if a killer whale was was uh, going to eat someone, you'd be in a thousand pieces. You know. Um, so they really looked at, at both that situation. And I believe in the situation with Dawn, like, like just the greatest toy ever. Um, but they weren't taught how to interact with us in the water. And so this, this, uh, trainer was killed in, in Sealand and the pool up there was really hard, hard to get out of if you fell in and they weren't in wetsuits, they were in clothes and boots and all this, you know, Holly Hansen. So when they'd fall in, uh, they would just be dragged down by the water and then they had a ledge that was about almost two feet off the surface of the water and under that ledge was a net so when you tried to pull yourself out you just swung underneath of the side of there's really really difficult to get out um so nearly an impossible situation to save her um and at that time bob wright the owner said look i i can't take this anymore you know and he called SeaWorld, and uh they said yeah we'll come in we'll take the whales and we were up there managing them for, um, don't quote me on this, but I want to say it was close to or a little over a year before we moved um, Nootka and Tillicum to Florida. And we moved Haida and her calf uh, to Texas. Okay. And so how long, and then I just, I, I time frame. So did he come to Florida in the 90s? Yeah, approximately you yeah, boy. I approximately 91, I think. Okay. I could be okay. wrong about that Corbin, but around that time. Okay. And then so when he comes into SeaWorld, I mean, so you said that you were like you were part of his team. You were like very involved with him at SeaWorld. Yeah, I was one of the senior uh people there and you know, we had teams of of four, sometimes five. And when you're the team leader, it's not that you're making all the decisions about that animal, but your responsibility is to communicate everything about that animal to the other parts of the team. Um, so for about the first three years, I think two and a half years of Telecom's time in Orlando, I was one of his team leaders um, because only the most senior people could work with him due to his background. Yeah. And with this background, and I'm just, cause I've never been a, you know, killer whale trainer or I've never worked at SeaWorld. So when do you, like, when do you decide to start going into the water with him since he does have that history? I mean, is it several years or what is that process like? I I'm glad you said that we were not allowed to go into the water with him. He, we were never going to be allowed to go into the water with him. And we, we wanted to, 
we wanted to, as trainers, we knew the safest thing we could do is teach him water work, right? Even if it wasn't doing water work, like what people saw on the shows, it would be desensitization, water work or conditioning, alternate response training is what we call it, where, you know, if I'm in the water over here, he's trained to go over there and target and vocalize. Um, and that would be the safety behavior we were going to teach him. But the, the lawyers, um, and it's hard to argue with, but the lawyers said, look, he's killed a person. No way. Mm -hmm. And they're not trainers. They didn't understand behavior. Um, I understand and I know, and I trust behavior like as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow. You know, it's, it's an empirically defined science. Um, and and so we had faith in that, but the lawyers said no. But you weren't at all. I mean, I'm just thinking in my position, Mark, I'm going to be honest. If, 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 <laughs> if, if I looked at that track record, I would think, oh, my God, the last thing I would want to do would be to get in the water with him. But yet I, you know, have no really no experience with, um, you know, killer whales. And I, I don't know if this is an example. And, you know, alligators, you know, crocodilians, large pythons have nothing to do with, you know, killer whales or orcas, but I work with them on a daily basis. I go inside their exhibits and people think I'm crazy, but I understand that behavior. And once again, I'm not comparing the behavior of an alligator to a killer whale, but was that kind of how you felt like you've been around these animals? You've seen the behavior, you've had years of experience. Is that how you felt? Corbin, you know, we, we can talk in, in, um, analogies all day long but if you really want to break it down from a functional analysis standpoint from a behavioral standpoint um, behavior exists for a reason right so the animals you work with they let you leave the the pen the habitat the whatever it is whatever it is they do and somehow you reinforce them for that somehow you have encouraged reinforced increased the frequency and strength of them allowing you to do what you do safely whether you're doing it intentionally or not, um, that behavior exists for a reason. And we would do the same thing with, you know, our proposal was to do the same thing with Tilikum. And this is what we did with water work. We taught the whales, you don't need to get frustrated. If you don't understand something, take a lap and we'll reinforce that. That's okay. Hmm. It's okay to get frustrated. Go take a lap will reinforce you because sometimes in the learning process, you can't understand what I'm trying to teach you and frustration can set in. Frustration is a step up that ladder towards aggression, you know? And so it's all about managing that process in a positive way. And with a whale and a dolphin, the, one of the first things you teach them is that you reinforce them for allowing you to get out of the water. You do it a hundred times a day. If you're in a session and you, you get in the water, you might get out of the water 15 times, even though you really don't need to. Why? Because you reinforce that repeatedly. It's a foundational safety behavior. Interesting. I mean, how long would, I mean, with the behaviors, for instance, how many behaviors could one particular killer whale know, I guess? Or Oh, to- gosh, thousands, thousands. I mean, really? Yeah, absolutely. The behaviors we taught them that we kept a repertoire list on were in the hundreds, you know, some of our more experienced whales um, in excess of 500. Um, And those are the behaviors that we listed and we actively maintain. But in terms of just the uh, infrastructure behaviors like, you know, um, 
social harmony and pro-social behavior and things like that. I mean, really for them to adapt to any environment. And this is the, this is a really interesting thing. You know, I find uh, it would almost be funny if it, if it weren't so awful, but um, people say, well, killer whales can't adapt to human care. You know, killer whales are the most adaptive animal I've ever worked around. They're masters of adapting to their environment. They thrive um, and, and they're not made of glass, you know, they're really interesting animals. And one of the most, uh, four or five dimensional relationships I've ever had with, with an animal. Huh. Okay. And how many, I'm just, I'm putting it in my mind. So I'm back in 91. How many killer whales are you working with currently at SeaWorld Orlando? Mm, 1991. Um, Again, don't hold me to it. I want to say about eight. Okay. Was Tilikum one of your favorites? They were all favorites. Now, I I, I was, uh, I had made Taima a personal project of mine because she was a youngster. She was super smart and um, she, she was learning faster than, than sometimes the, we were training her. Um, Mm-hmm. And idle hands are the devil's workshop. So, you know, she would get into trouble a lot. So I love that. I just love that. You know, um, I used to joke that she was smarter than most of the trainers that worked with her. So I love that kind of challenge. She was probably, if I was going to say I had a favorite at that time, it was probably her. Um, but I, I enjoyed the challenge of working with Tillicum. He was just, he was so slow. I mean, you had this... Mm-hmm you know, 10,000 pound animal that would be moving through the water like a dump truck with a double clutch, you know? <laughs> well, I, feel like, I feel like I know I've seen Tillicum because he was at the end of the show when I was a kid, they would always bring out for that grand finale, correct? I'm assuming that was yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because he was, he was so big. He was what everybody thought when they thought of the stage name Shamu, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but when do you start going into the water with him though? Because eventually you did. I mean, cause you know, Dom was killed in the water with him. When does that start? Is it several years or how does that work? Well, no, I'm going to correct you there. We did not deliberately ever go in the water with him. Um, there were times trainers fell in, you know, uh, I, even myself, I fell in almost right on top of his head one time, but that was an accident. Um, Dawn was not in the water with him when uh, she was killed. She was on the side ledge of uh, one of the back pools that was used in our um, dining with Shamu. Um, I say our, I wasn't even there at the time. I was no longer employed with SeaWorld in 2010. But uh, um, my, my, uh, you know, it's again like a family. Um, And I spent a lot of time with the folks that were there and there's a lot of things that, that are still uh, respectfully private about that situation. But, you know, I'll tell you, um, people say that Tillicum was in a uh, aggressive mood at that time. Like he had, he was not performing correctly. The fact of the matter is that, that it couldn't be more untrue. And Blackfish promoted this idea that, you know, they had, they had two of my former roommates, in the movie that were, I'm not going to be nice about this. I'm going to come right flat out and say that we're just a, a bag of lies, you know, that, that weaved this entire situation and described it as Tillicum was out of form. They had run out of food. He was frustrated. None of that was true. Don was lying down in three inches of water on the ledge, rubbing him down in what we call a relationship session. 
you don't do relationship sessions if an animal's had a bad session or a bad day. Relationship sessions are when they're doing great, when you really are building your relationship one-on-one -on -one with that animal. Um, so, you know, in that regard, nothing, nothing of that, um, nothing was going wrong at that point in time. So what do you think triggered? I mean, is it just because you were talking about his, how he was taken care of at Sealand of the, of this, um, Pacific, excuse me, where they were withholding, mm. you know, enrichment items from him, or do you think just something snapped? I mean, I'm just trying to. No, I don't think anything snapped. I think, you know, when he, um, when he pulled her in the water, he got a hold of her hair, um, and, and just kind of held on to it. And when she pulled, um, he pulled back from that feedback and she went in the water. Um, and then there's a process at that point, you know, the spotting trainer hits the alarm. Well, Tillicum had a learning history that when that alarm is hit, that means they're coming to take away his toy. So then, you know, imagine, I don't know if, do you have dogs? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Well, I have a golden retriever that literally re retrieves everything that's not bolted down in the house. And she loves to steal my socks from the side of the bed. So <laughs> you know, as soon as she gets a sock and she knows, I know she has it, she takes off. Like, you know, wahoo, I got this sock. I am out of here. And it becomes a game. So you know, some of that's true. Some of it's also, it did become aggressive because of the frustration, I believe, that uh, occurred in Tillicum's history with that game of keep away. Um, so, you know, you really had the perfect storm uh, there. I've never heard, I never, and I've, you know, I've seen Blackfish. I've read a few books. I've never, I never heard the the whole alarm and how that could trigger. I actually never well, heard it, that. And I'm glad you said that too, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, they interviewed me on for Blackfish for three hours, and they didn't. I I talked about all of this. They didn't use any of it. And why didn't they use any of it? Because it didn't fit the agenda of the film. Um, and and one of the most heartbreaking things for me professionally was that I had even my own mother and family members come to me and say you know, when, when did you uh, change your mind about SeaWorld? And I said, I didn't. You know, what What they used in Blackfish um, from my interview made it look like I was uh, being in agreement that, uh, that my opinions were congruent with the, the main actors in that film, and they weren't at all. Um, so that was well, frustrating. Yeah, I mean, but I would say if there's anyone in the film, though, you were, the, I think, the only voice, I would say, for SeaWorld. I mean, if you think about it, I, you know, I mean, you were, I don't know, I guess the one, I think, still with them. I mean, do you think if SeaWorld would have known how much of an impact this movie would have been just towards everything, their image, do you think they would have probably participated in the documentary? That's a really good question. Um that's a really good question. I, I don't think I can answer that, Corbin. I don't know. Um, you have to you have to keep in mind for right or wrong, SeaWorld was at that time, and I believe still is really in many ways, uh, the most advanced marine zoological organization on the face of the planet. Um, and right or wrong, mm -hmm. they they knew it, and they figured that this storm would pass because they have nothing to hide. I mean, you know, really get down to it, right? The moral majority knows this. This argument's between the extremes, right? It's it's between people, the outliers. Um, 
But the the majority knows that we want to have a loving relationship with animals, and they know that you can't hide, you can't abuse a a five ton animal and hide it, especially not in a park that says we're here for people to come see our animals. None of that makes any sense. It just doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. And in fact, what the scientific data shows today is that sea world's population of whales are living just as long and more healthy lives than the most studied populations in the wild. And I believe in 10 years, they're going to exceed that. But of course, Hmm. you know, we may may not see that. Yeah. And I just out of curiosity, because you worked, you know, I mean, you got your start at SeaWorld in 87, let's see, transferred to Shamu in what, 1998 or excuse me, 89 when I was born. Wow. (laughs) Oh, now thank you. (laughs) I'm just kidding, Mark. I had to put that in there. I, I had to liven up this conversation. No, I'm kidding. That, that's okay. Um, I, I do some consulting. I was working with a trainer recently that that had an epiphany and said, "Geez, you're older than my mom." <laughs> <laughs> you're just like, what? Oh my goodness. So, but I was going to ask back in the day when you were a trainer, did you see, did you have issues with like animal activists and people against SeaWorld as much as like they do now? And obviously, a lot of it now is contributed to like social media and uh, all that type of stuff. But did you have any issues with it back in the day? We did, but not at all like this. I mean, out of a room of a hundred, you might have one that would, um, and they wouldn't attack you. They would come up with genuine curiosity and say, you know, but is this okay? Um, And all you had to do is really talk to him for a few minutes. And then they go, oh my gosh, this is really fundamentally important. Not just okay, but necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, and here we are today, we're facing uh, still most of the general population don't know a thing about it. When you walk around and ask them what the sixth extinction is, they don't even know. And yet it's been monitored since the 1970s. And, you know, here here we sit where zoos are truly our last best hope. Um, and this is not the time to turn our back on them. So when you'd spend time back in, you know, when I was there day in and day out, um, I really enjoyed those interactions because it was just about eradicating ignorance, really. Mm-hmm. Now it's different. Now it is wholesale emotion. Um, and I can tell you just in my experience that when a conversation is is marinated in emotion from the start, it just never goes anywhere objective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting having having that conversation and you know just talking about the six mass extinction. Oh my god, I uh, oh I was just uh, I opened up my National Geographic yesterday just to get a wholesome read and man I just wanted to jump off a bridge after reading some of the articles about the poisonings in Africa and just all this stuff going in along you know around our world. It was just it's crazy. It is. It 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 really is. And and I've been there. You know you can get yourself all twisted up into. Um, a panic almost um, with the rate of, yeah. of damage that we're doing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's go back. Okay. So through your career, when do you leave SeaWorld? Uh, I left in 1996 and I went to help a really good, good uh, friend uh, that I would have followed anywhere with a, one of the oldest parks in the world, Marine Land in St. Augustine, did that for a little bit of time and also finished my um, uh college degree, business degree. And uh, then right from there in 1998, we started talking to the Keiko um, 
release project. And by mid 1999, my partner was up there uh, physically, and I came. I went up there and started uh, on the project uh, late in 1999. Okay, so really quick for because I do have a lot of young listeners. <laughs> this is going to be crazy, but some people don't know who Keiko is. Right from free, free Willy. It boggles my mind because the people, a lot of the kids who broke their piggy banks after watching the movie Free Willy, are now adults with their own kids. You know, and that's just that's freaky. <laughs> but <laughs> but you know, um, the Free Willy, I think, are is something that kids today are still familiar with. I mean, this was the Hollywood movie about a boy that befriended a killer whale in a small uh, facility and uh, snuck it out on a flatbed trailer and freed him into a harbor. And he jumped over to the jetty and swam off into the sunset and for three, three more sequels uh, to the happy ending. Oh, I think I only saw the first one. It was a good movie. I loved it as a kid. Yeah, I did too. There, there were, I was a trainer at the time working with killer whales and we went on lunch. A bunch of us went to watch it and you know, the movie was good, but of course we were wringing our hands and going, Oh my gosh, that's horrible. And you know, we weren't wringing our hands because they're freeing this killer whale. We were mm -hmm. wringing our hands because they were doing all these things with a killer whale. that is just not possible. Like you can't put a killer like whale what? on a flatbed trailer. <laughs> they'll okay. suffocate they can't <laughs> breathe with the weight of their own body you know they can't jump okay. over a jetty like they show in the movie <laughs> okay. i mean there's just so, so much about it's hollywood come on you know of course of course but hey it's still it's still a classic mark <laughs> it is a classic it is a classic and you know unfortunately what happened is that the public said this whale that the the movie was based on, um, and they were in outrage because he was in Mexico City at Riano Aventura Park, and he was in a very small pool. Uh, and of course, you look at that and you go, oh my gosh, that's horrible. You know, I mean, here's this big animal that can't even sit upright because it's not deep enough for him. He can barely turn around. So that started the whole movement, and animal rights groups really got behind it uh, got behind the movie, raised some money, got a million dollars from Warner Brothers, and uh, pressured the owner of Riano Aventura Park into donating, quote unquote, I'm making air quotes here, donating um, yeah. Keiko to their movement. They moved him to Oregon, Oregon Coast Aquarium, uh, built a facility there, and then, of course, fast forward to the end of the project and where he, he died in... Um, uh, 2000 and oh gosh, I just drew a blank 2003 um, in uh, Tocknes Bay, um, Norway. But, you know, after $40 million was expended and basically I call it the most famous case of animal abuse uh, the world doesn't know about. Yeah. I mean, go into that, Mark, because I feel like you kind of like fast forwarded just a hair. Okay. So basically, so it, so Keiko goes to the Newport, excuse me, the Oregon Coast Aquarium in Newport, Oregon. Mm -hmm. How long is he there? Um, you keep asking me these. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. He wasn't there long. He wasn't there long. It wasn't years. It, it might have been a year. The goal, the goal of his time in Newport was to get him off of medications, um, to get him in good water quality, because the water quality and the air quality in Mexico City was, was terrible. Um, okay. Let's set something aside here. His relationship with his trainers in Mexico City was second to none. He had a very 
very loving relationship with his trainers in Mexico City. They spent all day with him, every day. I mean, he was the most pampered killer whale I had ever seen. And here we had to turn him into a lean, mean, surviving machine, you know, uh, which has never been done before with an animal as, as socially complex as a killer whale. So, um, you know, but yeah, he's in Oregon. The idea there is to get him off his special medications, get weight on him uh, and and get him to eat live fish because that was about the complexity of the plant at the time. You know, if he can eat live fish, he can survive. And um, okay, yeah. So then uh, they move him to Iceland, September 1990, uh, September 8th, 1999. He's moved to Iceland. He's put in a sea pen in a small island south of the mainland, uh, a town called Jaime. The island's called uh, Vestminer or Westman Islands. And uh, the idea there is that he'll sh that they thought he would show him the way. They really thought once we get him back in his home waters, he's going to kind of indicate to us when he's ready to go. And, you know, mom's going to swim by. And see him, and there's going to be this great, you know, Hollywood-esque reunion, and he'll swim off into the sunset. That is literally what the organizations in charge believed. So he was there five months, and none of that happened, right? In fact, it was painfully obvious to the board of directors and Ocean Futures, uh, which was Jacques, uh, Jacques Cousteau. Uh, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. not Jacques Cousteau. Jean-Michel. Uh, Jean-Michel Cousteau's uh, organization uh, was called Ocean Futures, um, and uh, they they none of this happened. So you know they were became worried, uh, and they brought us in, and said, you know, what do we need to do? Well, we really looked at it from a from basic scientific standpoint. You know, what is the what are the steps that need to occur here to begin to rebuild rehabilitate this animal. Uh, and prepare him for a, a life that quite frankly is very harsh. You know, we all talk about the wild and swimming around and everybody thinks of this Disney-esque Nemo world, but that's not at all what it is. Uh, it's very harsh. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I'm introducing an adult male killer whale to wild killer whales. Chances were he was just going to get beat to death. Um, even if you got past all the other challenges that faced him. So, you know, it was a big, it was a big, thing to ask but i was at the time just turned 30 i think thereabouts and you should know this right now you know you have this magical um combination of immense confidence but good experience you know yeah actually yeah. some experience but you also <laughs> have this great confidence <laughs> and so to me it was like somebody said we're gonna put a man on the moon and i wanted to be the first one in line don't tell me you can't do that if anybody can do it, we can do it. My team can do it. And, you know, that's how we approach wow. the project. Okay. So you guys come in five months after basically nothing's happening. He's not joining, you know, any, uh, you know, groups, you know, his, his family groups. And so they bring you in, correct? And yeah. your, and your team. Was this your first time working with Keiko? It was. Yeah. Were you like starstruck? Was it like seeing Jennifer Lopez? Like, I mean, what, what, <laughs> like, was it like this is a famous whale? <laughs> no, I'm I'm not going to agree with uh, the the J Lo reference there. In fact, uh, because because <laughs> because I'll tell you, no, I was I I killer whales were so just so natural to me, 
so natural to me. I love killer whales. I, I, you know, could not wait to meet him to get to know his traits, his, his characteristics, his, you know, how was he going to face this? How was he going to do? And when I first met him, I mean, I thought he, if I didn't know any better, if he, he looked like a pregnant female with triplets. He okay, was no, really so good. Sorry, obese. Mark. He was so obese oh. and sedentary. And he was the slowest moving killer whale I had ever seen in my career. And at that point in time, I had worked with, uh, at one time or another, about 21 different killer whales. So I had oh a little God. bit of a comparison. You know? <laughs> and here was this big male that um, was younger than some of the males that I'd worked with. But man, was he lethargic. Really? So the first part of our strategy was to put him through boot camp, get him in shape. Mm-hmm. You know, and we did. I mean, he succeeded at some things. You know, he did get in shape. Um, he did get lean. He did get quick. Um, we did sometimes see predatory like responses. But here's the thing Mother Nature is this amazing trainer, right? Because she is absolutely harsh and unrelenting. And she says, if you've had a bad day, I don't care. You die. You know, mm -hmm. you miss that food, you die. You miss getting away from that predator, you die. You make a dumb decision, you die. Trainers, humans, we soften everything, right? Ah, you know, he's a little slow today. I'm going to give him a, a mulligan on that one. Or, hey, let's, you know, whatever. So for us to be able to shape him into this survival machine, uh, that's a big ask. That's a real big ask, especially when, and, and let me stop here real quick. This is going to be a little bit of an aside, Corbin, but, you know, I do believe in rehabilitation uh, or, or reintroduction. I do believe in reintroduction. I mean, we've done it successfully with a lot of uh, different species of animals. One of the most difficult animals to do this with is marine mammals because of the social complexity and the environmental difficulty. Mm -hmm. um, it has not been done successfully yet. However, we need to develop this science because it will be necessary in wildlife preservation and conservation. It is necessary now, but um, we need to do it from the beginning trajectory with that idea in mind. You don't take an animal that spent 18 years like Keiko had learning to build loving relationships with humans and turn around and say, now you got to go survive on your own. Because I'm going to get really, I'm going to apply a whole bunch of human emotion here to an animal, which I hate to do. But for the purposes of illustration, you know, Keiko really, I called it the mean season because he didn't understand. Mm -hmm. He didn't understand. All he knew was I love hanging out with people and that's all I want to do. And it's all he sought through the whole project, even when he went across to Norway. So it was really stressful for him. It was really, it was isolation, deprivation. It was punishment. It, it was mean. It was downright mean uh, thing to do to an animal that had spent his whole life with his foster family. Oh, my God. It just sounds awful. I mean, so you guys weren't allowed to be in his vicinity? I mean, you basically just just limited contact? Well, we did it systematically. I mean, we didn't just wake up one morning and go, hey, you know, no, nobody can blow him kisses anymore. But uh you know, we did it systematically. We tried to, uh, you know, re replace it with 
or provide the opportunity for those behaviors to be replaced with behaviors that would contribute to his survival. So, you know, this was a process. This is a very um, well-documented and very complex process of rehabilitation that he went through. Um, but, you know, there, uh, the, in 1993, the U.S. Navy commissioned a couple of researchers and said, can whales and dolphins be feasibly released? Whales and dolphins, mind you, that had been trained and in human care for many years. Uh, these researchers came back and said, um, didn't say, yes, it can be done or no, it can't be done. They said, here are the challenges. And they identified nine criteria. Uh, and those criteria have sort of become the litmus test for evaluating whether a marine mammal, cetacean uh, or pinniped, can be successful, successfully reintroduced or released to the wild. Um, seven of those mm -hmm. nine criteria are vested in the behavioral sciences and learning, right? So that's where the focus of Keiko's rehabilitation was, but he failed to meet seven of those nine criteria. And how did he fail? Well, he never learned to forage. He never learned to forage. He never learned to navigate. He continued to seek human attention, which is a legal term. Uh, the word nuisance is a legal term that triggers uh, the legal requirement under the permit to intervene, which means go out and get him back um, because it's dangerous for not only the people that he's soliciting, but also for him. Um, he did not integrate. Here's a social animal that we know is dependent on complex social groups for their long-term survival. He did not integrate with any wild whales. In fact, he was chased on many, many dozens of occasions by uh, the wild whales. Um, and, you know, so in none of the most uh, basic ways did he learn any survival skills. So how long is he in this sea pen? I mean, is it a number of years before he's released back into the wild? Yeah, let me, we're, we're skipping all around and, and to be oh, sorry. Fair, no, 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 that's okay. It's my fault. Um, to be fair, it usually takes me a good hour to get through the story chronologically, but no worries. Um, this is a, this is a podcast, Mark. This is why these are great. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you know, box, man. <laughs> we we um, a, a common misconception uh, is that you know we should have just taken them out and introduced them to wild whales. Well, there's legal requirements here. You can't just go decide to put an animal out in the wild. You have to have permits for these things, um, and those permits are often staged. So the first permit approval re we received was to house him in this location in Iceland. Um, the second permit was to take him out on open ocean walks, but we were specifically not allowed to introduce him to other marine wildlife for a host of reasons. Now, Mark, how in the world, sorry to interrupt, but how do you walk a killer whale in the ocean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly like you teach a dog to, to heal, uh, to walk by your side without a leash. Really? Mm hmm. Yep. We created a platform on a designated walk boat, and it was the only boat that he was ever allowed to approach. And we did a lot of desensitization work um, and counter conditioning uh, with other various boats and activity that we increased in complexity over time. And we did this in an open bay in environment where it was safe to do so. Um, but the designated walk boat had a platform on the side and an underwater call tone. And when the platform was deployed and the call tone was hit, it meant we're open for business. You can come over. You can approach the boat. 
And that's the position that we would be in when he would walk alongside, follow, not walk, but swim, you know, alongside mm -hmm. the boat. Um, when the platform okay. went up, that meant uh, go explore. You, you're, you're not going to be acknowledged. The boat is neutral. Go do what, you know, whales do. And in, in, in doing so, hopefully encourage him to explore his environment because there is that need to transition him to a new environment. But yeah, keep in mind, you know, uh, in, in an anecdotal way, I'll say this animal didn't even know he was a killer whale. I mean, if he's swimming along underwater and sees another killer whale, my guess is he probably probably scared him to death. <laughs> yeah, because he was never housed with another killer whale. Right? He, he, not never, but it had been many, many, many years. Um, okay. Since he was a youngster. And even then when he was young, he was beat up by the other killer. Whale. So he was never, he, he was, uh, sort of the, uh, odd man out even when he was with other killer whales. Oh, okay. So this was the process and we took him out. We introduced him to the environment. You know, this is, uh, and we always knew and had to con continually educate the board of free Willy, uh, Keiko foundation that, um, it would be a process because they really truly looked at it like the movie. They thought it would be an event that one day he would swim off into the sunset. And, you know, this, this is analogous to, we, we tend to, um, have you ever heard of Richard Louvre? You should get him on your show. Okay. Uh, no, I have not. Yeah. Richard Louvre wrote a book in, I believe 2012 called last child in the woods. And he, he essentially coined the term nature deficit disorder. And what it essentially mm -hmm. means is that our current generations and younger generations are the least familiar with nature and all of our known history. Mm -hmm. And yet we're the ones, these generations are the ones that will unfortunately uh, have the responsibility to fall in their lap of trying to um, salvage this, this ex extinction. So... Mm -hmm. I bring that up because, you know, nobody really knew how to interpret um, how this would happen. And they really based all their experience on Hollywood. So they said, OK, he's going to swim off into the sunset. And all their plans were were invested in that. Um, they didn't raise enough funds to care for him for year after year. They didn't um, expect it to be that a multi-season project. Um and they really thought that, uh, you know, this animal's biological mother would swim along and suddenly, you know, it's like if you were adopted and you're in a shopping mall, all of a sudden you're going to, you're going to recognize your biological mother. No, yeah, you know, animals yeah. aren't, animals aren't magic, but, but for some reason we, we tend to put them on that pedestal, but you know, this is the way the board looked at it. So when the initial introduction was finally allowed by the Icelandic fisheries department and the permit was given, we went out and they made a circus of it. We wanted it to be very, very low key. You know, we were thinking this is going to be one of dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds of passive introductions to the wild whales. And what we wanted is we wanted to bring this guy to the party and he was going to be the good guy. He wasn't going to be threatening. He wasn't going to be lingering or creepy or any of that stuff. He was going to be the good guy, right? And hopefully mm -hmm. he could find a pod that that would take interest in him and him and them. Um, and then observational learning and other things could kick in because they are such social animals. But what they did instead, anticipating that this was going to be the day he was going to swim off into the sunset, is they had a helicopter in the air. 
they had two different basically tour boats called them tracking boats but it was everybody and their cousin who had donated on the boats one at a first front row seat and they mm-hmm. tracked the wild whales for six hours prior to the introduction so the wild whales which also had a very very young uh, newborn in the mix became very excited very um frustrated uh and trying to avoid the tracking boat so you know here you created this melting pot of activity and um it went very traumatic for both the wild whales and keiko um and shortly after that uh when we finally got him back it it basically went as bad as you can imagine like uh, how they, i mean yeah go ahead well they they went one direction the wild whales he went the other uh it was a forced introduction he was wigged out of his head. His eyes were as big as I've ever seen. It took us 30 nautical miles to find him and catch up to him. Oh, and he was just out of his mind. Uh, it took us another day and a half to get him back into the base of operations. Um, and the lead vet at the time said, oh, he's swimming home. He's swimming home to his home waters. He was doing no such thing. He had no idea where he was. He was incoherent. He was out of his head. He was swimming in circles and then following the current. Um, you know, he he was just wigged out. I'd never seen a killer whale in that state of mind. But we got him back and we talked to the powers that be and said, look, we got to take this in a passive role. And they said, no, we're going out again tomorrow with the whole same uh, shooting match. And myself and three others, three of my colleagues said, Nope, you can't ask us to knowingly put him in harm's way. And so, you know, uh, several hours of deliberation, but we ultimately ended up resigning from the project that night. Oh, wow. You know, if I'd stayed, I would have had to go out and just subject him to things that I knew were not right, that were harsh, that he wasn't ready for, that, um, you know, would have gone very poorly. And they did. And they did. They did go poorly. Um, you know, there was a point in time, you want to talk about heartbreaking, where Keiko um, was left. Uh, the organizations at that point in time, after we had left, they decided that, you know, well, if if we can't get them to go with the wild whales, let's just keep putting them out there more and more and more. They figured more was better. So uh, it reached a point where, you know, he had no home, no home with whales, no home with humans. And he was left in the high seas many times. There was a point in time where he sat with his head against the tracking boat, vocalizing for over two days. Oh, my and, God. Yeah. I mean, absolutely heartbreaking stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, ended up uh, because a storm came in and the tracking crew couldn't stay out. Um, he was about 60 miles offshore of Iceland, the base of operations. Um, and he ended up three weeks later showing up in Norway, which is not a surprise because the surface currents kind of head that direction. And also there's some pretty common shipping, fishing channels through there. Um, but the first thing he did is he sought human attention and he had kids in the water swimming with him. People were feeding him. He was like the prodigal son come home. Um, but the organization stepped in and said, nope, nope, we're not done. This whale has to be released. And you have to keep in mind, it was driven by an animal rights ideology that we're going to prove to the world that these whales need to be released. This, by the way, 18 years ago, you know, uh, 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. 
And here we are today, these same groups saying the same thing about zero. Give us your whales. We're going to free them, <laughs> you know, and I it's it's not not to be laughed at, but I'm scratching my head going, does no one know? Does no one remember what what happened to this oil? Um, but he ended up dying of uh, he was malnourished for a long time. He was deprived of everything normal to him. It was an incredibly stressful uh, um, environment, and I, it was a long and drawn out death. It was not a simple thing. Um, so, as I said, the most famous case of animal abuse the world doesn't know about. And so, I mean, how long was he in the wild? I mean, I mean. Was it a few years? He was in the ocean for almost five years, but he was never without uh, dependent support. Uh, most of that time, oh he goodness. was actually in the bay pen, which is about the size of Shama Stadium's front and side pool. Um, they could only take him out in the ocean in the summer months because the weather was so bad in the winter. Um, mm -hmm. and then he was only on his own by himself for 22 days. And those are the 22 days after the storm and that he was left out and ended up in Norway. Oh my goodness. And this is the basis of your book, correct? That you wrote in 2014. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And you know, it's so ironic because I, I am a sucker for a happy ending. I hallmark during Christmas is the only channel I watch, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> this, this this book was a tragic ending and um, ironic that I had to write it, but I didn't feel like I had a choice. It haunted me for so long. I just, it just, uh, it just kind of came out. Well, I'll definitely have to check that out. And my goodness, Mark, I could, I could talk to you for hours. I just, uh, you know, just about this and, you know, I just really appreciate you coming on the show and, you know, um, kind of given, given your insight, I know I learned a lot. I think this might open the eyes, you know, to some of my listeners and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fun. I, I enjoy it. Um, I feel like I'm Debbie Downer here, but, uh, I, I, actually, know, I, do, <laughs> I actually do have a lot of really cool, fun experiences in my career. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like, let's, yeah, let's, let's end the show. Keiko diet. Okay. Goodbye, Mark. Like, <laughs> right. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Do you want to leave us with one fun experience and any advice for anyone wanting to pursue a similar career? Oh, I, I think working with animals in a direct hands-on capacity is an incredibly noble career, especially during our time. I, I said earlier, I think that, you know, um, zoos are our last best hope. I don't agree that we criminalize the animal-human bond. I think most of us want to live in a world where we cohabitate with animals successfully, right? So um, doing that in a professional capacity is there's nothing more rewarding, in my opinion. And, mm -hmm. and I, that's what I would want to say to some of the younger generations. Absolutely. Did you ever, ever want to work with like, I mean, was it just specifically marine animals that you wanted to go into the field with? Or did you ever want to work at a zoo? Oh, I've, no, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of different animals. Um, and, and I... You know, they're all so different. It's so fascinating. I'm so fascinated with elephants and, and uh, gosh, you owls. Um, so the list goes on. Yeah. I mean, never quite gotten into the reptile thing. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you could show me that uh, fascination. But uh, I could. But, yeah. Yeah.
But yeah, I, you know, and the fun thing is now at where I'm at in my career, I consult. So, you know, it's the old joke that you don't need to have a boat. You just know a lot of friends that have boats. So I get to go <laughs> interact with animals in a lot of different capacities. And I get to take part in, in a lot of um, field research, um, okay. which I think is just a blast, absolute blast. So, you know, you're taking all that experience of, of animals that, that, um, you know, knowing day in and day out what it takes for them to thrive and applying it to uh, health assessments and health and risk assessments of animals in the wild. Um, and that is an absolute blast and it feels good. I mean, so where are you going around the world to do this, to do these assessments? Well, we've had opportunity to do, no, mostly it's been here off the U.S. coast. It's just been, oh, um, cool. yeah, my actually physically myself in the water doing those things has been here uh, off the Gulf uh, of Florida and also off the Atlantic side. Um, but we've helped groups in other countries set up the uh, infrastructure for health assessments that they're conducting, um, mostly in Asia. And that's really necessary because there's lots of areas that, you know, you've heard, I'm sure you've heard um, somebody say before that, that dolphins are like the canary in the coal mine. They're a direct mm -hmm. reflection of the health of that ecosystem and often mm -hmm. a direct reflection of what is soon to happen to us in human health um, for many reasons, um, because they live in our runoff. And physiologically, they're very similar to us. So um, they're often the first ones to experience these things. And so we're seeing all kinds of things that, that, that are just scary beyond um, belief. And unfortunately, the problem is most of the damage was done during the industrial economy, right? So even though we're all trying to get better now, what we're doing now is going to benefit our great grandkids. But, but the damage that was done in the last hundred years is a freight train coming down the tracks we can't stop. We just have to salvage what we can. And that's what a lot of this research and field work is doing today. Um, so that's rewarding. I, I, I love that. I love helping in any way that I can. Um, and I don't think it has to be a, a sad ending. I don't think the sixth extinction has to be a sad ending. I think we can turn it around, but we are going to need protected environments to do so. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and I'm, I'm kind of with you too. Like, I, I don't know if you listened to this interview a couple of podcasts ago. I, I interviewed my really good friend, Mady, who's been in wildlife rescue for 30 years. And she just, I'm, I'm doing this podcast, which I, you know, try to make it uplifting and, you know, obviously get information out. And she just, she was like, I just have no more hope, <laughs> like no more hope at all. And, and I like, <laughs> I like disagreed. I said, maybe I think there's, I mean, I, I honestly know there's hope. I think, I think everyone can make a difference you know, in this world. And, uh, I definitely think well, we're, we're starting to learn. I mean, you know, here's the exciting thing, you know, um, when I first started, uh, one, one of the many exciting things and I've, you know, I've, I can appreciate what your friend is saying. Cause I've, I've been there and some days you feel that way, but, um, you know, we're starting to apply science in a way that is very effective towards the preservation and conservation of species. So, you know, you were talking with Carl Safina about wolves. I mean, what we're realizing is that wolves are such a critical part of an inter interdependent ecosystem. They have become the poster child for the benefits of reintroduction of apex predators. You know, we used to believe for 30 years that pumas on our, um, in our mountainous regions and, and west 
uh, were not social animals. And now we know that they actually are incredibly social animals that actually engage in uh, reciprocal feeding behavior. So they'll share their catch with um, other pumas. And this is all coming about. We're understanding more and more and more. You guys talked about elephants. You know, elephants create watering holes that create uh, life for an entire ecosystem. So this ecosystem follows them around and it changes the the surface of the planet. They can be changes that can be seen from space. You know, this is how impactful this stuff is. So we're starting to really truly understand uh, what needs to be done to live successfully alongside wildlife and animal management and to do it in a non-lethal way. That's what's new. So that's exciting to me. It is. And aren't you excited? I mean, cause I know, I mean, <laughs> I feel like social media, I mean, I know there's like negative effects, but positive effects, but I feel like it's really positive though, using social platforms to raise awareness. I mean, don't you think more people are now aware because you have these viral videos, you know, going on of the, you know, of a starving polar bear, or you have, people have access to more information. I think it actually is really helping us out. Well, I, I you're a little more optimistic than I am. Um, <laughs> well, I haven't, I'm sure you've been attacked because of blackfish. So yeah, I, but you know, I can, I can take the attacks. I don't care about the attacks. You know, I always picture somebody sitting in their underwear in their basement, um, you know, <laughs> or, or someone who's like on the toilet. like <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I also have to remember that, uh, and this is gonna, it's gonna, probably going to sound a little bit bogus to some people, but, you know, I've been doing this 30 years. I'm an expert. My opinion weighs a little bit more than somebody who's, um, you know, has not been doing this as a career. So I, I, I have to separate those things. What I do think about mm -hmm. social media, I agree, you're right. It gets a message out really fast, right? The thing that, that worries me is that it often gets the wrong message out. And it goes back to, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Winston Churchill, who said, um, the, the, a lie will make it halfway around the world before the truth can get its pants on. And the fact of the matter is that social media more often than not promotes disinformation first. And then after it all settles down and the dust settles, then, then you start to see some glimmers of the actual facts involved in the case. Um, I think when TV was first introduced, most of society didn't have crap detectors. You know, we didn't know. We believed every commercial we saw. I think the same yeah. evolution has to happen with social media. So at the end of the day, I think you're, you're ultimately you'll be proven right. I think it'll be a good thing. But I think we still have a lot of maturing to do as a society and how we use social media. Mark, you're completely aging yourself. You were around when TVs were around. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, when I was yeah. growing up, you know, we had Channel 20 and we had one other channel, maybe two, you know, and oh, I'm 51. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not that old. But yeah, I was going to say, but I, but I, I, during my lifetime, I've seen significant change in our communication technology. I mean, that's what I've seen. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but mm -hmm. no, I'm one of the first ones to adopt computers and stuff i love it <laughs> <laughs> okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you just a random question okay are you ready sure okay what is something that most people would not know um that you know working with killer whales like what is like what is a fun fact or something unusual most people wouldn't know that they have a very interesting sense of humor 
they will what oh gosh they will they will premeditate and set you up and it's hilarious it, they are and they'll collaborate more than one whale they'll collaborate on it um yeah I, I don't know what stories oh to pull God. out to, to evidence that, but I'll just tell you, yeah, they have a very, uh, a very well-developed <laughs> sense of mischievous uh, humor, I would call it. Oh my God. Can you give me like one example? Well, I, you know, there was one time um, when I was fairly new and I was riding on the back of one of the whales and another whale was right next to me. Um, and just as I was coming to stage where I step off gracefully, you know, and without skipping uh -huh. a beat, the one whale on my left vocalized to the one on my right, and they both ducked down in perfect symmetry and left me about two inches shy of the stage and just <laughs> face plant in the water. And then they pop up next to me like, hey, that was cool. You know, it was like that all the time. Just little things like, haha, you can't quite reach that, you know, and... You know, but then the other thing is there too. I mean, when you're really, um, and, and maybe I should have used this as the answer to your question, when you're working with them together, you're this amazing team. Um, they, they, they do everything to, to help you succeed. And of course you're doing everything to help them succeed. So a lot of the behaviors we did in the show, you know, I mean, what we used to call, you've seen it before where we used to come oh, yeah. up straight out of the water called a stand on. Uh, and mm -hmm. you're just standing right on the nose of the whale and you go back down together uh, as oh one. Yeah. If you do that, you know, a lot of times you would be completely out of balance and, and off to one side or another. And they would just get under you and balance you perfectly. And, how, and it, that that teamwork, that relationship, um, that was just really amazing. Never no, had anything like it since. No, Mark, just to get back on that, was that intimidating at first? I guess I remember watching the shows where you just come bursting out of the water. I mean, was that just uh, <laughs> like, were you, <laughs> I'm just like, I, trying to picture what that experience is like. For me, no, it wasn't intimidating. I never thought about it. Um, maybe I should have. Maybe I'm, I don't know. It just never occurred to me. Um, I remember the very first time I ever got in the water with a whale, it was with one of the babies. And um, mm -hmm. I got out of the water. I was in the water playing with her. My job was to, you know, play with her because they were doing a training session with mom. And mm -hmm. I was in the water for 20 minutes or so. I got out of the water and I realized, holy cow, mom was literally inches behind me, sitting behind me, this, this five ton whale. And it never even occurred to me. Oh my God. You know, they're just so, so majestic. There's just something about them. And I don't even, I've never really even worked with killer whales. That's uh, well, and they're not, and I'll tell you, they're not unpredictable. Like people want to believe they're called killer whales. You know, the name comes from, they kill and eat other whales. So fishermen back in the day used to call them whale killers and they were known <laughs> as predators, but you know, listen, they're the, one of the easiest animals in the world to work with. They give you a million precursors before they're going to do anything. I was picked up in the mouth of uh, one of the most uh, matriarchal, uh, most benign and kind leader female whales um, many years ago. I was playing with her baby because um, mm -hmm. babies have a habit of getting in the way, you know, when they're really young, they're just all over the place. So we'd mm -hmm. go play with them. 
while mom's doing parts of the show. And I was pulling the baby by her flukes. I was pulling her. Mm -hmm. She was just laying still and I was pulling her backwards. And of course she weighs about, you know, six, 700 pounds at the time, but she just loved it. She thought it was the most fun thing in the world, but of course mom didn't like it. And mom came over and gave me an eye and looked at me like, don't do that. And I stopped and she went back over to her trainer and everything was fine. And then the calf wow. came around and put her flukes in front of me again, like, do that again, do that again. So, of course, I did, <laughs> you know, being, being the idiot idiot that I was. And mom said, okay, enough of you. And she swam over, picked me up around the waist in her mouth, swam me to the edge, pretty much said, get out. <laughs> oh, my God. And then went back and finished the rest of the show. What did she do? So, so she picked you up and, I mean, like, I mean <laughs> – like in her mouth, she and just took put you to her the ledge. My way, she never squeezed down. She didn't. Yeah. She said, "Look, buddy, I've given you a warning. Stop pulling on my baby's tail. I'm putting you out of the water." And she took me to the edge. I got out, and that was the end of it. Oh my goodness, that is just crazy. I mean, did you ever have any times of uncertainty where you had close calls working with the killer whales? where it was a dangerous situation. I, I did, but you know, there's so much training that goes into those situations that um, we had a recall. And so the recall means that no matter what's going on, come back to stage and you will mm -hmm. be rewarded, you know? Um, and it's sort of also, Hey, we're going to reset the mechanism, right? If something's confusing, something's frustrating, the social environment's excited, whatever it is, hit that recall. Everybody come to position. Let's just take a breath, right? And that we rehearse that behavior so frequently in every type of situation that it works. It just simply mm -hmm. works. So I'd been out there many times and had a whale get confused and, and look at me and you know, you don't know what they're going to do next. And then um, the the spotter, we called them, the trainer on stage, would hit the recall and they would go into that recall. Interesting. Okay. You know, the injury, okay. all the injuries I got at SeaWorld were from me just literally running into concrete of my own accord. Stitches here, oh, yeah. pulled back, <laughs> sprained ankle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I just want to leave this for someone who is anti-SeaWorld. What would you like to say to them? I would say that now is the time that we need to celebrate our zoological experience, our public knowledge, and that, that, that organizations like SeaWorld belong to us as a society. Um, and, and that when they're healthy and they do well, um, animals benefit both in their care and in the wild. Um, you know, conservation is something that is done during during times of prosperity. And that's not only true of us as individuals, it's true of organizations as well. Um, so one of the best ways that you can truly contribute to our future is to invest in zoos. And I'm not just saying SeaWorld. Um, I do mm -hmm. think that we always have to hold to accountability um, that our best zoos uh, meet modern standards. But um, they are a noble undertaking and uh, something mm -hmm. to be celebrated, especially now when we need them most. Well, and I have to say, I mean, cause there, there are people who do listen to this podcast who, you know, are, you know, who are anti-zoo. I mean, it's just going to be inevitable, but I remember, uh, I mean, and I always like telling people just the millions and millions and millions of dollars 
as just visiting a local zoo that goes right back to conservation. I, I mean, just the numbers are insane how much money goes back protecting wild animals and wild habitats. And so, um, you know, that is something too that I think a lot of people don't realize. Well, they, they don't. And that's the fault of zoos that have, that have failed to uh, communicate that message. In a lot of ways, zoos are the showroom floor of conservation, right? They're front and center. Um, but people don't see that cause and effect in that relationship you're talking about. But, you know, a lot of times when you talk to people about that, though, Corbin, what I find, and I, and I agree with him, is that you can't sit here and say it's okay to abuse animals um, because, hey, we contribute to conservation. And that's not at all what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, um, I think one of the most, if, if people were to ask me what killed Keiko, and you want to get right down to it, it, it's not a who, it's a word. And that word is captivity. So you mentioned you have dogs. A lot of times what I tell people is, hey, you don't tell people, you know, I have a golden retriever. I don't say to people, I have a golden retriever in captivity. What do you have? Why don't we do a pet? That? I have a family member. Right, right. But pet <laughs> means what? Pet is a loving term. The emotional framework around that world, uh, word is, is centered on love, right? Yeah. Word captivity. Yeah. The emotional framework is isolation, punishment, deprivation. Um, and none of that describes the relationship that we have with animals in our, in our best zoos and aquariums. So if we're going to be objective about the role that zoos need to play, um, mm -hmm. we have to be objective about how we describe that relationship. So that's, to me, number one. But I think because of the extinction that we're facing, and look, we're looking at losing half of the apex predators between now and 2021 half of the known apex predators to extinction, um, we absolutely have to rely on our zoos to play a major role in preventing that. Yeah, people don't even realize we have like, what, like 20,000 lions left in Africa. I mean, it's ridiculous. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah, and there's, <laughs> and there's several, several species that are functionally extinct, which means they only exist in human care. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You know, and that's where reintroduction comes in too. So once we get through the storm, we need to have that science of reintroduction well developed. That's yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much just for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Can people follow you on social media or, you know, they can pick up your book, correct? It's on Amazon. Yeah, it is on Amazon, a few other places. Um, and it, uh, you know, I have a Facebook page, Killing Keiko, and um, yeah, they're welcome to follow me. I will say I'm sadly not not very active on it, but I do try to respond when I get questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, Corbin. I'm sure we could probably go on all day long. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.